You are listening to Give Me the Bible with Len. Today's program is entitled Contradictions. Hello my radio friends, welcome to the program today, it's great to have your company. I hope all's been going well with you this past week and if not, just remember, God loves you anyway. In these programs I've endeavoured to show you that the Bible is the Word of God and in the Bible you will find things about life of origins and of salvation, things that no other book can provide. But of course, there are people who do not accept the Bible. They say it cannot be the Word of God because it, supposedly, contradicts itself. That is, that it says one thing here and something different about the same subject somewhere else. Skeptics Atheists and agnostics belong to this group of doubters. But there is a significant problem with rejecting the Bible. The problem that these people have is that they have nothing other than human wisdom or humanism to direct their thinking. Humanism has no room in its philosophy for God, for salvation, or for eternal life. Humanism doesn't explain the basic questions and meaning of life. And humanism is devoid of hope. Reject the Bible and there's no concept of eternal life. Humanism does not explain things like evil, and love. It is an empty philosophy. And this reminds me of an epitaph on a gravestone which says, Here lies an atheist, all dressed up and nowhere to go. The truth of the matter involving those who look for information in the Bible, which they figure is a contradiction, is that these people do not want to accept that there is a superior being, God. They do not want to answer to anyone higher than themselves. Some of these people have combed the Bible looking for contradictions and have come up with a list of at least 101 things. Some of those things are listed due, due to having been taken out of context. In other examples, one of the Bible writers may have included information that was omitted by another writer. Sometimes the Bible statement may have been literal, and in another case may have been figurative. In still other cases, the critic may have been totally mistaken because of his own preconceived ideas. 
So, let's start. We will only deal with a few of the main perceived contradictions in today's program. Number one. In the Gospel of Mark, chapter 5, is the story of the madman from Gadara, sometimes known as Gadarenes or Gerasenes. Verses 1 and 2 say, They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an evil spirit came out of the tombs to meet him. In Matthew chapter 8 is the same story. But Matthew says two men came out to meet Jesus. In Luke's Gospel, also in chapter 8, only one man is mentioned. So the question is, were there two or only one man? There were two. But Matthew and Luke only mentioned one in this case, the more notable one. It's a bit like this. I might say to my wife, Oh, John phoned and he'll be coming to see us at around two o'clock this afternoon. When John arrives, he has his wife Helen with him. Had I told my wife a lie? No. Had John told a lie? No. He did come around. Yes, it was that he had not mentioned Helen. With the story of the healing of the madman of Gadara, the more notable man earnestly desired to, to go with Jesus. So the different gospel writers focused on different things, and that's not a contradiction. Number two, Judas. In Matthew 27 is the record of how Judas Iscariot, the unfaithful disciple of Jesus, died. In verse 5 it says, Then he went away and hanged himself. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 18 the Apostle Peter was addressing the dis disciples and he spoke about the death of Judas. He said, With the reward he got for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong. His body burst open and all his intestines spilled out. Is there a contradiction between these two descriptions of the death of Judas. You see, Judas had hoped Jesus would declare himself as king of Israel and oust the Romans. He tried to force Jesus to declare his hand, but Jesus was establishing a spiritual kingdom, a kingdom of the saved. It was not the political kingdom Judas was expecting. And when it became obvious that Judas had made a big mistake, he committed suicide by hanging himself. But as well as jumping from a tall tree with a rope tied around his neck, 
we may rightly assume the rope broke or the branch of the tree broke and Judas smashed down on logs or rocks below and somehow his guts were ripped open. There's no contradiction. One account provided minimum information while the other account provides more detailed information. Now number three, Michal. Michal was King Saul's daughter and was King David's first wife. In 2 Samuel 6.23 the Bible says, Therefore Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no child unto the day of her death. Note that the Bible says she had no child. But in second Samuel two eight, oh sorry, in second Samuel twenty one eight, it says So the king took Armoni and Mephibosheth, the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, whom she bore to Saul, and the five sons of Michal, the daughter of Saul. So what's going on here? Firstly, we read that Michal had no children, then she has five sons. Perhaps there are two different Michals. But no, the Bible clearly identifies Michal as Saul's daughter in both passages. But uh, wait a moment. Verse 8 goes on to say that Michal brought up the five sons for Adriel, the son of Barzillai. You see, bearing children and bringing up children are not the same thing. Adriel was obviously not able to care for his own children. So Michal took on the task of raising those children. They were not her own children, but she kind of adopted them. So is there a contradiction? No, not at all. Michal was childless, but she raised five children from somebody else. The Bible is true, and you can rely on it. Now number four, Jericho. God is described as a God of love. Secondly, in the Ten Commandments we are told not to kill or to murder. Yet the Israelites were commanded to kill everyone in the city of Jericho and at other places in the land of Canaan. Isn't this a contradiction? It appears that God is double-faced. There are two answers to this question. Firstly, there is legal and illegal killing. Illegal killing is murder. The sixth commandment in Exodus 20 talks about this. Legal killing is what happens during a war and as a punishment for crimes. 
The killing at Jericho was a legal killing. The other answer, the second one, is to do with punishment for crimes. Jericho was a very wicked place, filled with violence and crime. You can read about it in Deuteronomy 18, verses 9 to 12. It was so bad that parents even offered up their children to the god Moloch by fire. The children were burned alive. But the iniquity and evil of Jericho went way beyond that. Other horrible and evil practices including idolatry, bestiality, sodomy, sorcery and perversions of every kind were practised in this city. Jericho was so degenerate and so hideously debauched that the judgment of God became imminent and God used the Israelites to carry out the judgment. You see, while God is a God of love, human beings are answerable to him. For those who do evil, there is a judgment of eternal death. Sin cannot exist in God's presence and must be eliminated. Why should a holy God tolerate sin any more than our legal authorities. Sin and crime must be punished, and in the case of Jericho, it was in the most dramatic way. We're going to have a quick break now, and we'll go on straight afterwards. Once my soul was in sin And my heart was in shame I didn't know Jesus Not even his name Then I heard a voice say Won't you come unto me And he will do for you What he's done for me Give him a chance and let him prove it His love is best of all Give him a chance and let him show you He'll answer when you call His love is the sweetest His promise is free For he will do for you What he's done for me Give him a chance and let him show 
he'll answer when you call His love is the sweetest His promise is free For he will do for you What he's done for me Now, number five Faith alone. In Galatians we read, Know this, that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So too we have put our faith in Christ, but not by observing the law, because by observing the law no one will be justified. To use my words, this text says that no one is made right with God by law-keeping. Justified, a justification is achieved only through faith in Christ. Then in Romans 2 verse 13 we read, For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. The first of the two verses I read says that a person is only justified by faith in Christ, and the second says that the righteous are those who obey the law. Right? So, let's try to understand this with a modern example. You're caught driving over the speed limit. You are given or sent an expiation notice which says you are guilty of an offence and there is a fine attached. After being caught, you decide to be very careful and not to exceed the speed limit and from then on, on we'll say you don't. Will your keeping within the speed limit and obeying the law justify you? In other words, will it clear your name? The answer is, no, it won't. You, or someone on your behalf, has to pay the fine. Otherwise, you will remain on the police records as an offender. Likewise, with keeping God's laws, the Ten Commandments, will not justify you, as at some stage earlier in your life, you've broken one, or some, of the commandments, and are therefore guilty of an offence. Since God does not send out expiation notices, how can you clear your name? Jesus did what you cannot do. He paid the expiation with his own life. Therefore, it is only by faith or trust in Christ to act on your behalf that your penalty, your expiation, can be satisfied. In James chapter 2 and verse 17, the Bible goes on to say, In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. And then in verse 14 it says, You see that a person is justified by what he does, 
and not by faith alone. Now the sceptic would be very happy to throw these verses in your face and say, Aha, gotcha! But the Bible, the Bible contradicts itself. But the sceptic needs to understand something before coming too gleeful. If a person who was aware of his sin is sorry for what he has done, and that person asks for forgiveness, he is granted that forgiveness immediately because of what Christ did for sinners. The repentant sinner is justified. But along with that forgiveness, there is an expectation that the forgiven person will change his ways and live according to what God wants him to do. One's deeds or actions demonstrate what has happened inside the person. If the forgiven or justified person makes no attempt to live according to God's will, then in reality there's been no change. Our actions and deeds will show that we have been justified. James goes on with the argument and uses an example of a person who claims to be justified and who says, I have faith. James then writes about someone else who says, I will show you my faith by my deeds. And then he concludes the argument by making this statement. As the body without the spirit or the life is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Initially, a person is justified by faith. But then there must come a change, demonstrated not by words or intellectual assent, but by what that person produces as deeds. It's totally pointless when someone accepts forgiveness and then goes on exactly the same as before. For example, if your car is playing up and you take it to the mechanic to be fixed, you expect it will go properly after the repair. If, when the repair is done and the car does what it did before you took it in for repair, what is the point? Nothing was accomplished. It would have been a complete waste of time. There is no contradiction regarding this point of faith and deeds. The sceptic thinks it is a contradiction because in most cases he or she does not try to bother to understand the meaning of such verses. You know, the Bible has been under attack for centuries, yet it lives on. It is still the world's most popular book, and millions have staked their lives on its accuracy and authenticity. It is the book that gives hope for the future, and it is the book which has changed millions of lives. And it is the book that you ought to be reading, for within its pages you will find the way of salvation. 
Why don't you make it your daily practice to read the Word of God? It'll make a difference. It'll uplift you and bring you close to God. Skeptics come and skeptics go, but God's holy word continues on. I once read a poem about the Bible. In this case, an analogy was made where the Bible was likened to an anvil and the skeptics and those who attack the Bible were likened to hammers. The point of the poem was that many hammers had worn out or become broken, but the sturdy anvil remained. My dear friends, you can have confidence in the Bible. It is the word of God to humanity. It's not some dreamed-up invention of mankind. You can depend on it. Our time is up. Won't you join me next time for another in the series, Give Me the Bible? Until then, may God bless you, especially as you read and absorb his word, the Bible. Thank you.